It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And that, of course, was the mighty mega hunter T-Rex. A toy you might want to buy your favourite three-year-old for Christmas this year. But with all the talk of global supply chain snarl-ups, I know you're wondering, will those vital toy supplies from the North Pole and China get through? And if so, at what cost? Well, we have the very latest news from Hong Kong in a minute. We also have some hard numbers on the soaring wealth of the world's billionaires, and we take a few minutes to consider the new traffic light coalition in Germany and Angela Merkel's legacy after 16 years as Chancellor. Stay tuned too if you want to find out what her staff gave her as a going away present this week. Clue, it's not socks and it's not a watch. But first, here's our senior correspondent Ender Curran in Hong Kong with that vital update for anyone who has yet to finish their Christmas shopping. shaping up to be an expensive Christmas for Santa Claus as the big supply crunch of 2021 pushes up prices for toys. There's even a risk that some presents won't get to Santa's sleigh in time. So I went along to meet Dave Cave, the owner of Dragon Eye Toys in Hong Kong, whose products include the mighty Mega Hunter T-Rex that you just heard, to find out the latest state of play for toy makers. But before we dive into the details, here's a demo of one of his dinosaurs. What we've done really well with is to do a talkback junior Megasaur. It has three play me functions on the actual dinosaur. It's about seven or eight inches long, same in the height. It's a really cool dinosaur. So when you press its foot, you hear it walking. When you press its tummy, you can hear it uh, munching away there. And when you press its back, you can hear it roaring. And when you press the top of the dino's head and you say something like, Welcome to Dragon Eye Toys, this is the Talkback Dino. Welcome to Dragon Eye Toys, this is the Talkback Dino. And I can tell you, parents and kids absolutely love it. Cave sells to leading retailers around the world. And like every other toy maker, he has spent a year dealing with surging prices and massively disrupted transportation. While he's seeing some signs of stabilisation in the supply crunch, Cave reckons the spike in costs is still flowing through to consumers. Everybody's toys, everybody's kettles, everybody's whatever they're buying 
if it's come from China and it's arriving in the last quarter of 2021 and the first quarter of 2022, there's going to be price increases, anything from 5 to 20%, depending on the product. Recent data in Asia is pointing to some easing of congestion at the region's biggest ports, and economists say an easing energy crunch in China will also help supply chains. But CAVE is looking to Chinese New Year in February as a potential circuit breaker for the global supply crunch. That's a time of year when China's factories shut down for annual holidays, and it's normally associated with a lull in global trade. Recent data in Asia is already pointing to some easing of congestion at major ports, and economists say an energy crunch in China is easing and that will also boost supply. So the supply chain is still difficult. Um, The general feel is that Chinese New Year tends to be uh, where everything breaks off and we restart everything. And so I think a lot of people are thinking maybe end of February, early March, things will change. Still... Cave cautions it's not just supply chain snags that are hitting toymakers. The strength of the yuan and high oil prices could leave an impact long after ships are sailing on time again. I would say over the last 18 months we've had from the factories between a 3 and 10-12% increase over that 18 months, which we've had to pass on to our customers as best we can. Because uh, we, you know, in our industry, you have to be lean and mean, and there isn't that extra margin. And I think the buyers out there uh, globally realize that uh, prices will go up. The question they're all asking is, are they going to go up again in 2022? Nobody knows. Logically, they shouldn't go up next year unless something quite fundamental happens within the industry and China. So we're looking to stabilise the pricing in 2022. But obviously, as I say, when we reset the market in um, end of February, early March, we'll get a better indication of where the market is going. For now, Santa's going to have to dig a little deeper to fill his sleigh. Well, Santa, if you're out there, try your best to keep those prices down. But unfortunately, I think they're going to be a little more expensive than you delivered them last year, Santa. For Bloomberg News in Hong Kong, I'm Enda Curran. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you might have noticed it was a pretty big week for Germany, with Angela Merkel stepping down as Chancellor and a new traffic light coalition taking over under Chancellor Olaf Scholz, the Social Democrat leader who's featured on this podcast not so long ago. So our Berlin producer, Aggie Cantrill, is at the German parliament and I think could can paint the scene a bit for us. Aggie, I should say we're talking about an hour after the official handover of power took place in the German chancellery. But it's it's been a pretty momentous day. Just tell us what's going on. Yeah. Hi, Stephanie. So it has been 
quite a long day really in the in the Bundestag because firstly the Bundestag has to officially vote in the new chancellor which they did um with uh he gained a majority I believe of 395 uh, roundabout um and, but then after that he was sworn in as chancellor along with a new roster of ministers ministers that come from the greens the SPD and the liberal free democrats and then he went to uh, meet Merkel at the chancery and have the official handover this afternoon. And it's the, the, the coalition, you just described it briefly, but it's we, it's been known as the traffic light coalition, which sounds very exciting. But just talk us through what so it is. The traffic light coalition, I mean, it gets its name from the colours of the parties, as do all the coalitions. And thankfully, this isn't one uh, with a clumsily named flag as many of the other coalitions are <laughs> named but this one is a coalition of the SPD that represent the red the social democrats the greens that are uh, obviously as their name would suggest and the liberals that are classically a yellow uh, uh, color and there is a bit of a distance especially between the greens and between the fdp on quite a few issues when it comes to economic and fiscal policy especially the greens were always seen as these big spenders or this uh, party that had questioned the merits of things like germany's constitutional debt break and yet now because of the compromises reached during the coalition agreement we actually see probably a more fiscally conservative uh government than we would have expected if it were just, for instance, the Greens and the SPD, because there's a moderating force of the FDP that now are in charge of the finance ministry. And later on, I think we're going to get a little bit into how these three parties could possibly agree, because they sound very different. <laughs> but one of the one of the striking points to come out of the coalition agreement that I think caught people's eye outside Germany was the lowering of the voting age to 16. And that was I gather that was in a response in part to a big grassroots movement. How did that happen? I think something that's really notable about that lowering of the voting age is it's something that actually appeals also to those parties specifically. The Greens and the FDP have a very strong support with uh, among younger Germans. And I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about whether or not it's not a question of the CDU and the SPD losing out overall, but the fact that they're losing dominance within younger voters and those voters are looking for a sort of alternative to the left, right or progressive, conservative uh, dichotomy, but within two other parties, a party, one party that stands for digitalization and modernization and another party that stands for a lot of uh, progressive social issues and environmental policy. And that's the Greens? Yes, that would be the Greens. Yeah. It's been quite low-key, though, or maybe it's just that I'm not sitting in Germany, but you know, Angela Merkel's been around for 16 years, has been this momentous figure. I mean, has it? Is it just not a big deal this week because you've had, you feel like you've been saying goodbye to her for at least a year? Uh, I actually think it has been quite a big deal, but I think the real momentous occasion was the election itself, which of course happened a couple of months ago now. And I think it's because now everyone's been wrapped up in the coalition agreement that uh, it sort of passed them by that this was actually Merkel's official last day. I think the real the real drama happened around the uh, around the election itself, and of course Merkel's party losing out on another term without her in charge. Well, it didn't pass us by on Stefanomics. What do we think Angela Merkel's going to do now? 
I, I'm pretty sure she's going to go on a lot of hiking trips. That was her <laughs> present uh, from the chancellery staff today. They brought her some some hiking sticks and a tin to bring some sandwiches in on her trips. And I think she's probably going to take a, quite a long holiday. <laughs> no expense spent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Aggie Cantrell, thank you very much. Well, I'm joined now by Holger Schmieding, Chief Economist for Berenberg Bank and a wise observer of the German and broader European economy for many years. Um, Holger, thanks very much for, for joining Stephanomics. Um, Angela Merkel has had 16 years in office, one of the most influential politicians of our era by any measure. I sort of feel like if it was any other country or any other chancellor, we'd be making much more fuss about her departure, no? Well, indeed, what we are seeing is a very smooth transition of power in Berlin. And it really does mark the end of an era, but it does not mark a major change in policies. And that's probably why there is only limited excitement about it. We'll get, we'll get on to the, the, the new government in a minute, and I think in any other country would, would seem uh, more exciting. I know you're, you're going to carefully explain to us why we shouldn't be too excited, but... Uh, if you think about when the history books are written, uh, what, what are the main contributions that you think Angela Merkel will be remembered for? She will not be remembered for one single contribution. She will probably be remembered most for two things. First of all, she presided over one of the best periods, you could say, in German history. 16 years of stability, of peace and prosperity with a record rise in employment. The number of jobs where you earn enough who have to pay payroll taxes on her watch, rose by 30% in a population that did not increase very much. So that is indeed one thing. The other thing is, of course, her very contentious decision during the refugee crisis to not close Germany's borders again after the first rush of refugees from Hungary had been let in. And the subsequent, we and the subsequent wave of migrants, of course, did sharpen uh, and exacerbate divides in the country, in Europe. It probably contributed a bit to the British debate about Brexit. So that is one thing, the refugee crisis and the dealing with it that she may be remembered for. But let's put that into context on the European level. She, after some deliberation, did a lot to keep the EU, the Eurozone together as well as she could. She kept Greece in the Euro, overruling her own finance minister on that matter. When she really had to, she put a lot of German money on the table during the pandemic to support heavily affected countries during the euro crisis. So she was, in one sense, a very strong European, despite the controversies she's triggered during and in the aftermath of the refugee crisis. I mean, you mentioned the refugee crisis. I suspect that was a time when Angela Merkel, as, a, as an individual politician, really crossed people's radars outside of Europe because you had those pictures coming from the, the German train stations and the borders and then her speech effectively saying to open the borders and that, that anyone could come in. I mean, that was, that was quite a moment at the time. What was the more long-term impact on the political scene of that whole crisis? 
On the German political scene, that crisis, the discussion about many, many migrants coming in, did revive the fortunes of the flagging far-right AFD party, which now is a presence in the German parliament with a good 10% of the vote. It had been scoring below 5% before the refugee crisis. So it did sharpen the political debate in Europe, in Germany, and did add to support for right-wing, far-right parties. Having said that, first of all, her big decision to let in refugees from Hungary was widely applauded across the political spectrum. It was her subsequent hesitation about closing the border again. Her refusal, coming from East Germany, having been hemmed in by a wall for much of her life while Germany was divided and she was on the wrong side of the wall. Her refusal to erect a wall at the German borders, figuratively speaking, that is to strongly police the borders against migration, that refusal in the end um, proved to be quite controversial. She is still uh, hugely popular today. Yes, she leaves office as the most popular policymaker in Germany, a position she has held through most of her time with some ups and downs. You could say she leaves very much on a high note. And when it comes to the refugee situation, what we also have to say, now with uh, six years having passed since then, the integration within Germany is not proceeding too badly. So the verdict is open, whether in the longer term, net-net, the problem, sharpening divisions within the country, or the benefit, a country with an adverse demographic actually gets young people, most of them are eager to work. Whether this net-net will be a positive or a negative longer term, simply the verdict is not out yet. Certainly from the outside, Germany seems to have been, despite, and maybe as you say, perhaps in, in, in part because of the way immigrants have been able to be integrated in the labor force but you know d- despite all those debates around the refugee crisis germany seems to have been largely spared the kind of extreme polarization and the toxic politics that we've seen certainly in the uk and the us over the last few years is that is that right or is that just sort of wishful thinking that is absolutely right germany has been spared much of the um toxification of politics that we see elsewhere. We have traces of it, but not to the extent that you see in many other countries. One reason for that is, of course, history. Having had far too much of a polarization of society in the 1920s and early 30s, and we all know the terrible consequences of that, uh, Germans shy away from taking extreme positions. On top of that, the German constitution, the federal nature of it, de facto enforces a kind of consensus. Yeah, the government of Angela Merkel for three of her third terms included, apart from her center-right conservatives, the center-left social democrats, which meant that compromises between the two big strands of political thought, the center-right and the center-left, had to be struck within the government. And also the strong role of the constitutional court and the upper house of parliament, where typically the party that is in opposition in the federal government has a veto, de facto enforces that mainstream parties have to talk to each other and come up with a joint view. And as a result, Germany rarely does big policy shifts which do not enjoy broad political support across the aisle. So you do have, I mean, on paper, just turning to the the new government that we have that that, that takes power um, this week, um, it's 
as you said, it's the Social Democratic Party, along with the Free Democratic Party and the Greens, which in any, as you said yourself, it sort of crosses the political spectrum uh, in, in Germany. In any other country, it would sound pretty difficult to manage. Is it is it going to be an unworkable coalition? At first, it may sound unworkable. I mean, you have to imagine in the US as if sort of 60% of the Democrats were to cooperate with 50% of the Republicans for one government, within oh. one government. That's roughly what we President are having. President Biden can only dream of having that. He exactly. can't even get the Democrats to cooperate with that. <laughs> exactly. So at least in Germany, we have seen that these three different parties um, have come up with a joint program to govern. Germany has a long tradition at least the long post-war tradition of such coalition governments, which again straddle the political divide. For us, this is normal, that you tr- that you campaign on your own platform, but you basically know that once it comes to governing, you are not implementing your own manifesto. You are trying to combine your manifesto with that of your coalition partners of a different persuasion. And probably it will work, simply because in this government, the three parties have granted each other a bit of leeway when it comes to social policy, such as hiking the minimum wage, it is not a compromise. The social democrats, the center left, have said we want the minimum wage, 12 euros per hour. They get it. The Greens have said we want a faster exit from coal. They get it. The liberals have said no tax hikes to fund all of that. And they get it, which, of course, means we need a few tricks to actually fund the extra investment spending. But it's not just a compromise that is all murky. It is something where all of the three parties can say the government's programs. It does bear to some extent our imprint. Hence, we can and could sell it to our members. So events always happen. It it is never easy in government. Stuff will happen. There will be discord. But I do think this government is as likely to be stable as previous German governments were. And full of super reasonable politicians who don't do any of the things that other politicians in other countries seem to do. When we think about the big challenges for the country, obviously, and the environmental is is one, the energy transition. Um, people for a long time, uh, particularly economists who are not German, <laughs> have criticised Germany for being too dependent on its export sector and heavily reliant on that, on that sort of uh, manufacturing side of the economy, which has remained so much stronger than it is in many other European countries. I'm interested... Given the current climate concerns about US and China relations affecting um, the integration of the global economy and the now right now the supply chain issues uh, that we're seeing, how, how has Germany been affected by that? The current supply chain issues affect Germany a lot. What we are seeing is very subdued output in the car sector, say at least 30% below what German companies could produce and what they could sell, given that order books are full. So Germany's heavy dependence on manufacturing, which requires a lot of inputs, including semiconductors for cars, for machine tools, is now in the near term, a significant weakness. It is one major reason why Germany in the recovery from the pandemic is now lagging far behind, or not just a little behind France. Having said that, this is probably an issue that will no longer be that relevant, say, two years from now. My private guess is that two years from now, with almost every government subsidizing uh, semiconductor production, we may have a glut, or at least sufficient, if not too many, semiconductors. What we can say, if we look back at the last 20 years, all in all, Germany's focus on 
top-notch manufacturing has not served the country badly. And it hasn't paid to bet against Germany in the last few decades. People certainly in Britain and the UK, in the US, are a bit worried about getting their toys in time for Christmas with all these supply chain issues. Are you, are you nervous? Are people in Germany nervous about that? Rushing out to get your toys early? Supply chain issues are a major problem in Germany, but they are more a problem on the production side affecting the car industry. There is much less talk than in some other countries about the delivery problem that is getting that what arrives in the ports by truck towards the shops. There is a bit of anxiety here and there. People are being encouraged to buy their toys early, but at the moment, this does not seem to be a big issue. One reason for that is probably that Germany is wide open with its land borders. So even if truck drivers are scarce in part of the country, they could come from other part of the country, or more precisely, they could come from Poland, from Romania. This is a pan-continental European logistics market, which is strained, but which does not seem to be anywhere near breaking point where you would have to fear that Santa Claus would not be bringing what the kids would love. And thank goodness for that. Holger Schmieding, thank you very much. You're welcome. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The pandemic has been a golden age for billionaire wealth. You might have suspected that to be true, looking at stock markets and property prices soaring around the world, even when we were in the midst of the COVID slump. But now we have some hard numbers to prove it, courtesy of the Global Inequality Lab, the research group established by the French economist Thomas Piketty. US economy reporter Augusta Sireva wrote up the story for us and is here for a quick chat about it. Augusta, Thanks for joining us. Um, what, what are the most eye-popping numbers in this report? Thank you so much for having me. I think the most surprising thing of this study is not that billionaires have lots of money and control lots of wealth, right? But it's the fact that during the pandemic, that's when they gained the most wealth. So last year, for example, they saw billionaire wealth reach 3.5%, up from simply 1% in 1995 when they started tracking these numbers. So it's been going up. So 3.5% of the world's wealth. Exactly. And that's only, and that's fewer than 3,000 people. Yes, that's controlled by about... 2,750 people. And nowadays, they control 3.5% of the world's wealth. And at the same time, the poorest half of the global population controls only 2% of the global wealth. That's crazy. And what are the factors that are that are driving the increase during the pandemic? Because obviously we did have a recession in many countries, but we did see stock markets go up, I guess. Yes. And what we happened was also that we saw the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? So at the same time that we saw a lot of people going into extreme poverty. So for example, one of the one of the numbers that the authors of the report mentioned to me when we spoke this week is that the World Bank estimates that a hundred million people are now living in extreme poverty. 
poverty since the beginning of the pandemic, at the same time that we're seeing billionaire wealth soar, right? So this is happening at a moment in which, as you mentioned, we're seeing both financial and real estate markets soar, uh, and we're seeing a lot of people on the bottom half of, of the income distribution suffer a lot from uh, the lack the lack of income during the pandemic, the lack of benefits, and this is a trend worldwide. Yeah, and lack of benefits, lack of vaccines, clearly. Of course. Um, and I could, uh, I, I also noticed in the report that the, over over sort of globally, the richest ten percent control maybe sixty to eighty percent of the wealth. But there is there are quite big distinctions across regions. So what are the, what are the most unequal? places in the world? Yes. So some of the most unequal places in the world nowadays are, of course, the Middle East and North Africa, Latin America, and of course, Russia and Central Asia. These are places where, of course, you dealt in the past with a lot of inequality. So this is not something new. But what the authors of the report uh, are saying is that nowadays what we're seeing is a shift from colonial inequalities into market inequalities. And these places just showcase that. And I mean, the other thing that I guess was distinctive about this report is they talk about not just the wealth gap, but also the carbon footprint gap. The fact that the wealthier people, although they might talk a good game about helping the environment, actually have a much, much bigger footprint, carbon footprint. Yes. And what's surprising about that is some of the some of the highest inequalities are actually seen in some of the richest parts of the of the world. So, for example, one of the regions where you see uh, some of the most striking inequalities when it comes to the carbon footprint is North America, where the top 10 percent of the population emits on average 73 metric tons per capita each year, compared to less than 10 tons for the poorest half of the population. In, in North America, no, that, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's within, within the country. And I can't help thinking, Augusta, I mean, when we've, we've obviously talked about inequality before on this show, and lots of people talk about it, and we've I've interviewed Thomas Piketty himself uh, for Stephanomics, and there was this feeling in the midst of the pandemic, as it became clear that inequality was being exacerbated by the crisis, that there was going to be this great move uh, political appetite post-pandemic to tackle inequalities or at least start to reduce wealth inequalities uh, in many countries. Do you feel like that that's panning out? Do you see any appetite for that? I mean, I'm thinking about some of the debates we've seen in Congress in the US, for example. Yes, it was definitely part of the conversation in the US for a long time. We saw Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen talk multiple times about how the U.S. not only has to end this race to the bottom when it comes to taxes, but also play a leadership part in that. But of course, right now we have many conversations happening at the same time on the policy front, right? We're talking about infrastructure bill, we're talking about taxes, we're talking about building back better. And of course, this this whole conversation seems to be panning out a bit. I think that's also it's interesting in the in the, in the UK there seems to be no appetite for that kind of action at all and if anything on the margins the the extra spending and the tax changes have tended to benefit um, higher income people more it's all interesting Augusta Sureva thank you very much thank you for having me
Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like the programme, please take the time to rate it and follow at Economics on Twitter for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen with special thanks to Ender Curran, Augusta Sureva, Aggie Cantrill and Holger Schmieding. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.